Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Well, good morning. My name is Aaron Elmore. I'm the lead pastor here at the Kirk, and we are so grateful that you're here today to with us to worship outdoors. And uh, the podium that I'm looking at currently is covered in dust, which means we are under construction and uh, we are excited about what's going on in the room. And uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be back in there worshiping together. But we've got a pretty good morning uh, here to be outdoors, especially in the shade. So glad that you were able to be with us. Those of you joining online as well, we're glad that you are joining your hearts with ours. And this morning we're continuing a series in the book of Genesis on the life of Joseph called Intended for Good. We're going to read Genesis 37 this morning. I want to encourage you. I'm going to read a pretty good chunk here because it's narrative and it's hard to leave pieces out. So you're probably going to want to follow along with me. Uh, so I encourage you to get out your phones or grab a Bible and go with me to Genesis chapter 37. So we can pay attention to God's word this morning for us. Genesis 37. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilphah his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he had made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly... My sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And his brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. And they sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I've heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. 
and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. And the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Now let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And we'll stop right there. Now, normally when we have visitors come to share with us for Tulsa, we have them read the scripture. Frank, you're welcome for not having to uh, bite off that very large piece of text. Uh, so glad that you're here with us today, Frank. Thanks for your ministry here in Tulsa. Frank's going to be up at the Ford Tulsa 10 afterward. So if you have any questions about influencers or journey uh, men's ministry, uh, please go by and, and say hi to Frank and uh, learn more about it. But we're really grateful for your partnership in ministry, all you're doing here in Tulsa. All right, so we're diving into this series here in the book of Genesis. And, sorry, give me just a second. My computer died on me, of course, if I can even see it. Otherwise, you're just going to get an impromptu sermon with no notes. See, if I was really good, I wouldn't need notes, right? <laughs> All right, here we go. We're alive. Was that amen to if you're really good, you wouldn't need notes? <laughs> All right, I'll receive that word. So the challenge for some of us is that this story is maybe familiar to you. Maybe you're very familiar with it. And I think sometimes when we're familiar with the story, we feel like we know all that there is to know about it. So we kind of continue to hear the same themes and we hear it uh, from a perspective of, I've, I've, I know this story, I know what it's about, I know what it means. But I want to challenge you, as hopefully you've experienced so far in your life, that with God's word, there's so many layers to it. And while the meaning of God's word 
doesn't change, we're always changing and our circumstances are always changing. And so I pray that you will either hear something in this story over the next several weeks that you didn't notice before, or maybe you hadn't paid attention to, or maybe you've already forgotten, or that you'll see the same truth, but you'll see it through a, a different light. You'll see it in a different significance because you aren't the same person uh, that you were five years ago or 10 years ago. And so I hope that we'll come with fresh eyes to see this story for what it has for us. So last week we began by looking through this lens. We began with the end of the story. The lens is that at the end of the story, uh, Joseph is able to say, all that happened in my life and all that's unfolded, I can now see that God has intended it for good. Even what was meant for harm and what was meant for evil was for good. And so we're taking this lens with us into the story and we're gonna unpeel a couple of layers with each section of the text. So the two layers that I want us to see in each section is first of all, I want us to see the wisdom of this piece of the story. I think each piece of the story has a distinct uh, set of wisdom for us. Uh, there's much more to hear than we could ever unpack in, in just a few sermons, but I want us to see what does this part of the story have for us. And then I also want us to see how each piece fits within this broader theme of the idea of intended for good. And so this morning, as we look at these two layers, I want to talk about two Ps. I want to talk about piranha plants and placement. Piranha plants and placement. So the wisdom of this particular piece of Joseph's story, the beginning, I believe is about the damaging consequences of allowing bitterness, envy, and jealousy to take root in our hearts and to grow into something that's very ugly, even deadly. The, the ability of bitterness, envy, and jealousy to grow into something that's very nasty. And the image that I think encapsulates this process for us is that of a piranha plant. Now, I don't have a screen to show you visuals this morning, so if you want visuals and that's helpful, you can just Google piranha plant right now, P-I-R-A-N-H-A, -A, uh, plant, and you will find two different versions of that plant within the first number of Google results. The first of which is a kind of cartoonish looking piranha plant. I was first introduced to the piranha plant through the video game Super Mario Brothers on the original Nintendo Entertainment System that came out in 1983. That's the year before I was born, for those of you who pay attention to things like that. And so that was the first system that me and my brothers had was the Nintendo and we played, that was the first game we played. And in this game there are these uh, piranha plants and these nasty little critters come and they try to slow you down or take you out and they pop out of pipes. Uh, but there is an actual plant, there's a sort of Venus flytrap looking plant. There is an actual plant that that piranha plant was based upon. Uh, it's called the Hydnora africana. It's a terrifying plant native to South African forests. Besides looking similar to the digital counterpart in Super Mario Brothers, this species is accustomed to relying on a unique a set of species interactions. So first of all, these plants have large roots under the soil. The only part of the plant that is visible above ground is this carnivorous flower. Yes, I said carnivorous flower. That's, that's an unusual thing. Okay? And the roots of this particular uh, plant uh, apparently are very deep, they're very strong, and uh, this plant has no leaves, and no chlorophyll in order to photosynthesize. So in order to do this, it takes on a parasitic role and the plant actually attracts 
bugs into its nasty mouth that looks like it has teeth uh, in order to pollinate and all that. And again, I'm way above my pay grade, like I don't understand how these things work, but it's a cool plant. Uh, and it was a cool part of the video game. And I think it provides an interesting visual to us of this idea of how bitter roots, fueled by envy and jealousy, produce a nasty, biting creature. So we can become like these plants. If you haven't looked them up already, you should look. They're just, it's a wild looking flower. You almost can't call it a flower. So let's dive into Joseph's story and, and see if the analogy has anything to do with anything. So like a growing plant, the root underlying issue for Joseph's brothers is bitterness. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. Can you imagine? I'm one of three brothers. I can just imagine multiplying that by four. Um, we're, we're a little bit competitive. We've, we've matured a little, we've grown a little. Uh, but a couple of years ago, I actually got in a foot race barefoot with my brothers that resulted in an injury to my foot that took several years to get over. And it was all because of my human pride. And I lost the race. That's the worst part about it. We can be competitive. I can't imagine living in a family with 12 brothers. Now, the complicated thing about this family as well is that these 12 brothers were actually born to four different women. Okay, it was a different world back then. I'm not going to get into all the details of that right now, maybe in an in-depth Bible study, but it was a, it was a complicated mixed family. And because of this, uh, the birthright, which was normally given to the oldest son, things got complicated for this family. Long story short, we learn a few chapters earlier that Reuben, the oldest, has sinned against his family in such a way that he has lost basically the honor of being the firstborn, of receiving the double blessing, of being the honored child. So, but as you look at this family, there are a number of the other brothers who could have made a case that this birthright belonged to them. But Joseph, who's the 11th out of 12, ends up becoming the guy. And we don't, we're not really told this explicitly, but it's probably because he was the first biological child of, of Jacob's favorite wife, which was Rachel. And that's why he becomes the guy. But envision this scenario, 12 brothers, there's a lot on the line, and Joseph is the guy. So this forms a layer of bitter roots in the family, this family drama. And, and if you think the Bible's rated PG, it's not. Read the Old Testament, it's a lot of crazy family drama. A lot of sin, a lot of just wild stuff that happens. So it, it's happening here in this, this family that produces patriarchs uh, that leads to Jesus. Right? So we're talking about this theme of how what was intended for evil turns out for good. God works through even broken families and all the messiness of that. So in this opening scene to Joseph's stories, we're told that his father sent Joseph to go check on the work of his brothers. Joseph appears wearing this infamous coat of many colors. Uh, that makes for a, a great craft in children's ministry uh, and in VBS. Uh, the coat probably was made of many colors, but the language here, actually, probably the better way to translate it is, as the NIV now has called it, it was an ornate robe. Even more than it being made of many colors, which it probably was, is the fact that it was a long robe, and it was an ornate robe. In other words, it was the kind of garb that someone in management wore. It symbolized that he was the guy. He was not a working class brother. He was the brother who was... In charge. So again, it symbolized the bitterness of these brothers that this almost youngest brother is in charge and is coming to check on family business, so to speak. 
Jealousy is the more common word we use. We'll often see somebody, you know, going on a vacation or they have a nice car. We go, oh, I'm really jealous of you getting to go to Colorado or whatever. Well, really, uh, the word envy, as the Bible uses it, would actually be more accurate to describe that feeling. Envy and jealousy are very closely related, both to the idea of coveting, but they're, they're distinct. So here's how I define the terms in terms of how they're used in the Bible. Envy is the distress or resentment we feel when others have what we don't have. Okay, that's envy. And it could be possessions, but it also could be a position, fortune, achievement, success. Anytime someone else has something that we want for ourselves, uh, that, is, that feeling is envy. Very tied to the idea of coveting. Now, jealousy is the sense of dread or suspicion we feel when what we have might be taken away from us. So it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. So envy is you have something and I wish that I had that. And jealousy is I have something, but I'm afraid that I might lose it. And they're tied together because we live with this competitive mindset that there's a limited number of goods and resources in the world. And we live with this mindset that there's only so much good that can happen, kind of intuitively believe that. And so if things are going really well for you, we feel like, oh, well, then I might have some goodness taken away from me. If things are going well for you, then they might go bad for me. We, we view the world through these, these weird lenses. It's like, okay, if you get these resources, then I can't have them. But we forget we serve an infinite God of infinite resources and infinite goodness. But because we have this limited mindset, we look, we look at the world and we look at other people through this competitive lens, whether we realize it or not. It's like we're competing, not just for money, not just for jobs. We're competing for good relationships. We're competing for everything. We approach our lives through this lens. And so it results in an underlying bitterness that then can grow into jealousy. You have that. I wish I had it. Or I'm not going to let go of the things that I have and share them freely because I'm afraid I might lose what I already have. Envy, jealousy, two sides of the same coin. And when this grows, eventually these twin energy sources of envy and jealousy result ultimately in hatred. And that's the emphasis of the text. Three times in a couple of verses, four, five, and eight, it says the brothers hated Joseph. They hated him because they were bitter, they were envious, they were jealous, and that eventually resulted in hatred. And hatred then, when it goes full seed, when the plant matures, results in us becoming like a piranha plant where we grow teeth and we get nasty. It results in our actions. James chapter 3 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by their deeds done, and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but it is earthly and it's unspiritual, even demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. So the roots of bitterness are fueled by envy and jealousy. The result then is hatred and then us taking action like a biting piranha plant of getting after people. Now, you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, I would never be like Joseph's brothers, okay? I'm not gonna like sell my sibling off into slavery. I'm not gonna try to kill him. I'm not gonna pretend that he died and lie to my father. I'd never do anything like that. But yet, there are many ways when we can become like that piranha plant 
And maybe we're not in that unique situation, but we have this underlying envy and jealousy and bitterness in our life that results in the opposite of being four people. I think, this, I think this story really fits in really well with this idea of being four Tulsa because as people, we're to be four people, but if we're living in this competitive world and our hearts are filled with jealousy and bitterness and envy and we're living out of this perspective of competition, we can't be four people. We'll be against them. We'll be piranha plants. I think it ties in really closely to the, the whole idea we're talking about here. So envy, strife, quarreling, bitterness, jealousy, these are all things that produce a toxic environment that result in a declining gospel impact in the community, personally and as a group. Envy leads to hatred, hatred leads to evil action, even evil action against our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it all begins with a root of bitterness, that sense of unfairness and entitlement. I deserve better than this. God, how come I didn't get this other thing? As human beings, we struggle with contentment. We struggle with this competitive nature. I think comparing ourselves to others uh, is, is more common than we realize. And I know that uh, it's kind of cliche to go after social media these days because most pa pastors are. I'm not anti-social media. I'm not anti the digital tools that we have. But I think it's worth assessing how these tools, which can be used for great good, but how they're influencing our heart. Because I've noticed in my own life, and I think that if you reflected on it, you would see that how social media, one of the negative impacts of it is I think it's an envy and jealousy producing machine. I, I mean, I see it. I see people going on vacation, man, that'd be great. I wish I could do that. And those are kind of the surfacey things, but I think beyond that, we, we're, we're looking at people and how they're portraying their lives, and oftentimes we're, we're envious of how they portray their life, even though their life's not nearly as good as they portray it on social media. And that's okay. I'm not saying that's a good thing either. We should just put all our cards out there. That's, that's not a good thing either. But constantly we're looking and we're comparing ourselves to other people in their lives. I think we'd be wise to think about how it's affecting us. Maybe times step back from some of those things or rein in or, or at least just be more intentional of thinking about how these tools and resources are producing in us potentially bitterness and envy and jealousy that results in a nastiness that oftentimes is very subtle. But it's not the ground for being people of gospel goodness, of being for people. It puts us in competition with our neighbors in an unhealthy way. So we also want to understand how this story fits into the broader theme of what was meant for evil, God intended it for good. And I think the word that captures this moment in the story is position. Position. And we find out at the very end of the chapter, the last line, and God got Joseph to the land of Egypt. He was sold to be a slave in the household of a powerful man named Potiphar. And as wild as it is and how there's so much of this we can't understand, we see that even the evil actions of his brothers to sell their brother into slavery, who can imagine? Even that evil action, God is working behind the scenes, redeeming that situation and getting Joseph to a place that he would never have gotten on his own. So again, we look at that and we say, okay, the actions themselves were not good. It was evil. 
Okay, don't be like that. People say just point at something random in the Bible and then go and do likewise. No, there's lots of stuff about don't go and do that. But what, what the story tells us that is that even through the evil actions of the brothers, God is accomplishing something greater and something bigger. And it says he got Joseph to a place that he would never have gone on his own. He would never have gone down to Egypt, yet God needed him to be in a place of influence at a critical time in the world, literally to save millions of lives of people, including his own family. So God works redemptively through that. And I think as we think about our own lives, we can see that there are times and there are situations and there are things that we go through that we, in the moment, go, God, why do you have me here? Why am I doing this? Why do you have me in this place at this time? And I think that we can see God sometimes is positioning us for something that we would never have imagined or we would never have seen if we hadn't gone through what we went through. God redeems situations in our lives by using it as an opportunity, as I talked about last week, positioning us oftentimes for greater gospel influence to be in a place that we would never have chosen to be, but God's sovereignly working through these situations. So God is positioning Joseph for what we're gonna find out as we continue in the story. Most of us will never face situations as unique as Joseph's or be given a task of such great responsibility. But we all wrestle with the question of our position in life. We wonder why, where, when, how. We have these questions. And sometimes we don't understand them in the moment, but other times we're able to look back and on things in our life that we went through earlier and we're able to see, oh, okay, I see what you were doing there. And it gives us perspective and it fills us with faith. But the truth is, sometimes there's things that you go through in your life and you'll never understand the redeeming aspects of them. You just won't. I wish I could tell you that, that there's a bow in the end of every story and that every hard thing you go through your life, at some point you're going to have an aha moment when you're going to go, I get it and it was worth it. It's not going to happen. There are things that we will not understand in this life. We won't see why we had to go through them. But the question is, will we have the faith and trust to believe that there's a God who's sovereign and who's good and who is working in the midst of those circumstances and that he is working good things out of them? Will we have faith? And that's the predominant characteristic we see in the life of Joseph. He wasn't perfect. In fact, I think his pride is what sets up a lot of this whole situation. We don't know. The story doesn't tell us that God told him to tell the dream to his brothers. Maybe he just decided he wanted to do that on his own. Maybe he threw, he threw fuel on a fire that he didn't need to. He wasn't perfect. But what we see throughout his story, the way it's presented is that he continued to place God at the center of the story. He had faith and he trusted God and he was willing to be used by God in those circumstances. You don't have to be a perfect person to do that. And we can all, in this way, be challenged by this story. And, and the goal is not, you know, go and be like Joseph. No, the goal is place your faith and trust in a sovereign God who's good and believe that he is going to work out the circumstances of your life for ultimate good, for your good and for his glory. It takes faith to believe that. We have examples of those who've gone before us. We have examples in this congregation of people who are walking with incredible faith and trust through incredibly hard circumstances. And we can share our story because that's encouraging to those around us. 
Joseph's story reminds us over and over again that God is for us, and that makes all the difference. And if God is for us, then he is for our neighbors, and he's for our city, and he's for our world. I think the wisdom that comes from the beginning of the story here is to see that we can't look out at the world with a competitive mindset and operate out of bitterness and envy and jealousy. We have to believe in a God who's in control of it all and trust in him. That will give us the ability to see that God is for us, but to see that God is for our neighbors. It will make us into a unique kind of people. If we'll have eyes to believe that all of it is intended for good. Would you join me as we pray this morning? Father, you are a good God. You have poured out your grace upon us as your people. And I pray, Lord, as we continue to look at your word, we will see stories and examples of incredible faithfulness in the midst of wild circumstances. And it will encourage us that whatever we're facing, God, that we can trust that you are good and that you have a greater plan. Lord, I pray that we would trust in your sovereign mercy that we would be formed as your people. Believe that you are good and that you're for us so that we can be for this city, this place that we call home. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. We love you and we trust in you. In Jesus' name.